Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. The COVID-19 pandemic and quarantines of 2020 caused disruptions in the music industry that we're still feeling a few years later. But while we're fortunate that the lack of live music will fade into memory, the releases of quarantine albums may very well add up to an interesting reflection of these unprecedented times. With no opportunities to tour and limits on how and when musicians could gather to write and record songs, many artists created and recorded music in isolation or collaborated remotely to produce new music. One of those projects was Johnny Lied, a collaboration between two longtime friends, John Hershert, a veteran Minnesota musician, and accomplished producer John Fields used their time in 2020 to reimagine classic albums. Their second effort was a full rearrangement and recording of Billy Joel's The Nylon Curtain. The duo released a song a week with accompanying videos on YouTube. As the last track hit the internet, we sat down with Hershert and Fields to learn about why they chose this album, how they recorded separately from each other, and how they see the album as relevant to the world today. The song-by-song remake stripped down Billy's most meticulously orchestrated album and built it back with entirely new instrumentation and perspective. Along the way, we also talked about the state of the music industry today and got a glimpse of the Midwest rock scene. Join us as we dig deep into a unique reimagining of the Nylon Curtain. Two thousand twenty-two just so happens to be the fortieth anniversary year of the release of the Nylon Curtain. We thought it would be a lot of fun to celebrate this great album in a few ways. So we are going to be bringing you a trio of episodes, all involving the Nylon Curtain album. In the fall, we're going to be doing our album retrospective on the album, which is going to coincide with the actual fortieth anniversary. Later this summer, I'm going to be doing my next playlist episode, which is going to have live cuts from the Nylon Curtain album. And this first episode of this trio of Nylon Curtain-centric podcast episodes is with a great duo of musicians who goes by the name Johnny Lyde, who just released a reimagining of the Nylon Curtain album. The two of them re-recorded the entire album, and we will be talking with them today about the process and about the choices and everything like that. It's a great way to set off the celebrations of the Nylon Curtain. And beyond the album itself, what I really enjoyed about this conversation was in part discovering that this was a completely genuine undertaking. We became aware of this project probably the same way most of us Billy Joel fans were 
the duo was posting uh, videos from each, you know, they made videos for each song and they, as they released them, they posted them on the retold page and other uh, Billy Joel groups. And so we all caught on that way and I dug them and a piece of me was just wondering if the, if it was just a little bit of piss taking, you know, cause these guys were, uh, you know, uh, kind of hip, you know, and, uh, you know, B- Billy is still terminally on hip in a lot of ways, even though I think his stock is rising. I was, uh, very pleasantly surprised to find out just what huge fans they were, um, through and through. And it made what was already a great project really astounding then to, to discover, you know, how excited they were about these songs, even before they were thinking about doing it, the level of detail they went into. I especially liked it. And you'll hear these comments, just their thoughts about what this album meant when it came out back in 1982. It's, place in American history, the time era in which it sat, what it reflected, and how that plays into what's going on today in its own way. You know, that made what could have been, you know, a conversation that certainly Michael and I would have enjoyed the hell out of, you know, just getting real wonky and technical and, oh, did you use a marimba on this one? And, oh, how many overdubs did that take? You know, that the kind of stuff I love, at least. Right. Um, really, really colored this in a different way. It sort of showed uh, the perspective of, of where Billy's music sits in the pantheon of popular music in, let's say, the second half of the 20th century, and also what he was able to say about life in America in the early 80s. It was really great to hear how they rediscovered the album through the process, and they were obviously familiar with the A-side, as most people are, but the more they explored side two of the album with prizes and Scandinavian skies and where's the orchestra... You could see them falling in love with an album that they already liked by really dissecting it and really getting deep inside the album, doing it their own way in a very organic way at the end of the day. The results are fantastic. It's a very interesting approach. A lot of arrangements that I wouldn't have expected. And Mm. it works. It works really well. And it's just two guys here. It is a duo. John Herchert and John Fields. Funny enough, I knew the name John Fields over the years, but until just a few days before our interview, I never put the connection that it's the same guy. John Fields is a music producer and an engineer, has been in the business since the 90s. If you go into the other room and look at my CD collection, I probably have 50 or so albums that this guy's done. And so to actually get to talk with somebody whose work I've already admired over the years was a big treat. And the rapport that him and John Hurchard had was was just so much fun. And, you know, hearing the involvement of Glenn Phillips from Toe the Wet Sprocket. So many cool stories about this project and how it all came together and where they see it going from here. I'm really glad they were able to take some time to chat with us because it was a really fun project and a great conversation that came out of it all. Let's jump right into our interview with Johnny Lyde. Shore. Met our mothers at the U.S. 
what it looks like on YouTube, just where you guys started off with Katie Lies uh, in 2020. It looks like this collaboration was something that came out of the pandemic. Was that the case or had you guys been planning on working together for a while? Uh, I see that face. There's more to the story. Go on. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, that's exactly what happened. I mean, this in this very room and his room and in, mm-hmm. in, you know, we live about 10, 12 miles apart. My family was very safe. We didn't go anywhere. We didn't do restaurants. We didn't go to s- stores. We were Amazon delivery groceries for a long time for that first, you know, 10 months. Yeah. yeah. And we were just kind of cooped up in the, and I was cooped up in this room. And actually, I have a studio that's like eight blocks away from here. That's like a big building and all that with all my stuff. But once the pandemic hit, I kind of built a little home studio here with, you know, a mic, a guitar, a keyboard and a pair of speakers and, you know, a couple of guitars and and just hope for the best. This is what, you know, I never had a home studio for the last, I don't know, 15 years because I always had like a, a separate place. So um, I had to build something quick. And then we started doing these late night FaceTimes between me and Herkert. I've known him for 25 years, maybe even more, 30. We made a ton of music before this together. Back in the 90s, he had a band that I produced called Mango Jam. And I did, our, I think it was their second record and third record in like 93, 94, 95-ish. And then we just kind of fell in love back then and you know, dabbled with each other here and there on different musical projects, and but never really... We never really finished anything is what's weird. We started a solo album for him, but he kind of usurped it back and and took away all all that we did and redid it all himself, which is way better than the way we were doing it so far. So we've known each other for a long time. That's not true. Yes, it's you're the man. Fields is he's been a mint. You know, when I first met him back and then, you know, he's a couple years older than me, but I was like, who is this guy that can play everything and knows the studio, he's like a whiz, you know, and I, I was so green. I had no idea how a record was made or anything. I just, I had some talent and whatever. I was in a jam band and (laughs) I was blown away by this guy and his knowledge of music. So he's always been an inspiration, but his band was a little more tropical rock. Psychotropic. And this, and and, you know, what we (laughs) kind of bonded on was like Delamitri. Yep. Kevin Gilbert, toy matinee, jellyfish, crowded house. Um, the Grays, the Grays, XTC, you know, XTC, all the yep. yeah stuff with like cool Rundgren. chords, yeah, yeah, Rundgren, yeah. and and he kind of really turned me on to like I didn't know all of Rundgren's stuff, and then it all came back to me as he was he's like you know he's a Todd freak, so but like Utopia, Utopia was a big one for me, and you know obviously something anything I think I heard that when I was in the womb, you know he and I just have this music connection of you know. And we're looking to learn. And by the way, we didn't we didn't even mention. I mean, the biggest was I, I've seen Steely Dan twice live in my life. And both times were with you. <laughs> so <No> kidding, because <laughs> you had the tickets and, I, and you're like, you want to go see Steely Dan? I'm like, fuck, yeah, let's, you know, <laughs> and we just bonded on all of it. And actually, you know, to be honest, there's a lot in common. Actually, strangely, having done Katie Lied and now Nylon Curtain, you know, they're both really complex musical records. You know, it's not your normal G, A minor, C. It's not, you know, it's not that kind of music. It's like you really have to science out and figure out what's going on in there. And, you know, I, you don't want to be embarrassed and be playing it wrong. Or, And yeah. I got to be honest, I remember playing 
pressure on a piano. I was producing a band in New York City once, and I remember it was at the Hit Factory. And I remember it was like, oh, Billy Joel recorded here once. And I was, and the, the assistant engineer was like, he played on that piano. <laughs> and, I, and I remember sitting on the piano and I started playing pressure. It's like, and my buddy Dorian was with me and he was playing drums. It was drums and piano. We weren't even recording, we were just jamming in the big live room. And I was like, I swear I've been playing that song for, for 25 years on a piano wrong. It took this project to sit down and actually figure it out. Like there's so many little details that you, you forget about. And the same thing happened with Steely Dan. I mean, I am a freak for every little note, but that's not a band that you just listen through as a musician and are like, oh, like you're not just like saying like G minor, F right. sharp minor, you know, you just, it, you can't. Okay, but back to the original. So now we're stuck in our, homes john has a really cool home studio his like it's you can see it. it's awesome my garage i converted my garage no more cars in here yeah so that's no, why when you been... you know when you see some of the the home like you know footage is me basically in this room pretty much yeah and he's always in a cool looking you know <laughs> spot if i remember correctly the way it started on the pandemic was and it's not the billy joel side of this but it was the steely dan side i wanted to learn i started actually that that story of like learning the song for real. And I wanted to learn, uh, I think, was it Rose Darling? By, Rose Darling. Yeah, Rose Darling, which has this part in it that I've always felt was the same exact music as this Todd Rundgren song. Just it was like the exact same. It freaked me out always. And I was like, I got to learn how to play this. Learned it, laid it down to a click track and I sent it to John and I was like, dude, you should sing Rose Darling to this right now. And he did. And he sent me back the vocal and I was like, "Ooh, I'm going to play bass, Sent it back to him. He played guitar and he took video of the guitar part and the vocal. And all of a sudden we had video of the, t the, the recording of of Rose Darling. No, there's no Johnny lied at this point. There's just two guys drinking wine at night during a <laughs> pandemic at midnight. Well, we actually we actually went on a walk one day. We hadn't yes. seen each other in a while. We went on a walk with an, an, a friend of ours, played who bass player, mm. and we kind of reconnected. And I said we should play tennis sometime. And we went and played tennis. And I remember yep. we were playing tennis. And he's like, "You should really make a Steely Dan style I, record." I mean, I, you're, I said, the uh, way yeah. you, yeah. He was like, "What you should do next is something you know." We should, and. It's like, well, to do that, you really need to know it. So when he came back with Rose Darling, just said, you know, and I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Boom. And, and all of a sudden, we learned a whole Steely Dan record. And we cut the Rose Darling and we finished it. And I said, okay, great. So we got that done. But the real, the, the only real way to do this properly is we got to do the whole album. If you just do the one song, okay, well, whatever. But it's going to, I mean, look, there's like nine people in the world that will be impressed that we did this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and one of them is not Donald Fagan, probably, because I remember seeing the announcement. They're going to play Five Nights at the Beacon Theater, <laughs> you know, each album one night after like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And I'm like, how do they know and can learn all that music and remember it? <laughs> and we're just yeah. like taking, you know, four months to like even hobble through this. <laughs> right. <laughs> the fun part was the video. And that was pandemic. And that's why most of it is outdoor stuff yeah we were just looking yeah, we for just stuff got outside yeah minneapolis was cold and is cold right now i really wasn't working with bands or anything I, I was doing a lot of like home mixing and and i just 
my session schedule was done like during the whole pandemic. So yeah, well, which is still the pandemic, I guess it was just a great diversion to get together with my longtime buddy and, you know, do these new versions mm-hmm. and uh, have fun doing it. And then John is the editor for, for the video he, that's, and he got into that thing big time. And I had just gotten an iPhone 12 pro, which had a cool, wide angle lens and one of those uh, steady cams. And then we started putting out the, the Steely Dan songs one week at a time. Then we put it up on on uh, all the streaming services just for fun. And we, and John came up with this incredible name, Johnny Lied. And uh, and we just kind of left it at that. That was a year ago, about now, January. And then how did this next thing happen? Johnny, I mean, how did Nylon Curtain happen? Well, we are talking about what is what are we going to do next? And, you know, are we going to do another Steely Dan record or, something? or are we just going to be like a Steely Dan? Like, no, we get to do whatever we want. We're Johnny lied. You know, it's like who, no who else is. kind? Of, yeah, it's kind of who else is our next big inspiration. And I've I built this studio about seven, eight years ago. I t- took over the garage and I got a grand piano and I'm not a piano. I'm no liberal. You know, I can pump out some chords, et cetera. And I know music, but like I wanted to learn how to play piano. So I wanted to learn Billy Joel. So that's how I really got into Billy Joel. Like, Actually, I knew you know him. what, John, that's- you should back up about Billy Joel. And and because John had a Billy Joel cover band or has one that started maybe five, 10 years ago. It was he, about in- that same time, about eight really? years ago, actually. Yeah. yeah so was, what what was, was that band the, called? It was called the Sloppy Joels. I promise from the start mm-hmm. I could not love you Any better Love you just the way you are group was kind of inspired by a bunch of local Minneapolis people. There's one guy from Minneapolis who made a post one day and okay. on Facebook and it has like 8,000 comments. Now it's, it's a kind of a bit, we call it the Billy Joel thread. Uh-huh. Okay. It's a friend of ours. Mm-hmm. He posted one day. I, I only wish Billy Joel defended me as much as I defend him. Yeah. And it became <laughs> this passionate it's Billy still Joel. Alive. It's That's still great. alive and it comes alive. And so, and, and from that, a bunch of us locals, we are all like, we should start a band, you know, and do a Billy Joel tribute. And yeah, we don't have to be perfect. We're going to call it the sloppy Joels. It's going to be fun. And we all get to learn the song. So for me, that's how I really got into Billy Joel. Like I knew him as a kid from the hits, Yeah, but I didn't, I never bought the records, you know, okay. I didn't start buying records mm-hmm. till like 80, 86, 87. And I was buying Zeppelin and, Pink sure. Floyd and yeah, you know, I was kind of, but Billy Joel was always kind of in my soul. I knew all the, you know, only the good die young and all, you know, whatever, all yeah. those songs, the nylon curtain, the way that impacted me the first time I heard, yeah, I knew pressure in Allentown for sure. Um, but my dad served in Vietnam. He flew Huey and the OH1 and Cobras in 
in Vietnam. So he came back from a Vietnam reunion and one of the video on a VHS, he was playing me the VHS of the, of the memorial or whatever. And that song was on. And I was like, that's Billy Joel. I'd never heard that song. And that song, like it just hit me like, Oh oh my God, he's, he spoke for my dad in that song. And that's when like my respect just went, Whoa, I got to figure this guy out. Mm -hmm. To me, every time I hear that song, it kind of hits me right in the heart. And then there were so many other songs on that record that I didn't really know. And it is kind of a, a, a modern man at that time, he's 33 making this record, just kind of coming to life and giving so much truth about where he's coming from and what he's been through. And the whole idea of the nylon curtain and kind of being able to see through the facade of the rose-colored glasses we have in America. And mm-hmm. I don't know, he had a real, to me it's just, it's so much bravado. And I don't know, there's something about that record that resonated with And I was like, Fields, what about the nylon curtain? And I mean, of course, I was like, I'm in now, <laughs> my, you know, my nylon curtain story or I mean, my Billy Joel kind of history. Um, it's funny, the guy that started that thread, I defend Billy Joel, that 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 <laughs> Facebook thread, his name is Mike Rickberg, and he's an amazing musician and songwriter of a band yes. called Rex Daisy. And okay. um, but in the early 90s, like probably like 94, 95, we had a band that played every was it Wednesdays or Thursdays at Lee's in downtown Minneapolis for years? Uh, it was a <laughs> weekly gig, and it was a it was a cover band called Two Tickets to Paradise, and we basically played kind of I don't know I would not say tongue in cheek, but just '80s covers or or just cover a cover band. But we were sloppy, like you know, it's funny he was in the Sloppy Joels as well, but just <laughs> yes, kind of Rickberg was in the, yeah. scrappy scrappy versions. Like we didn't rehearse. It's like we <laughs> sometimes we'd play like the entire. The Wall by Pink Floyd and never have rehearsed it. And you're just like, and I was the keyboard player and we're just like trying to get through it. And of course, everyone's drunk out there. So it's just fun. And it's our friends. It's not, it's a small little crappy bar. Yeah. So it was, there was no pressure to be good or anything like that. So, but we played all for Lena because uh, that song to me, like I grew up in Boston, basically. I was born in, well, I, I would be like, 11 years old when glass houses came out in 1980 and i have a weird kind of musical history in that my uncle was a hit songwriter and producer and he i mean he had he had a huge hit called funky town oh yeah mm-hmm. and oh, his, wow. his band uh was called lip sync and it was but it was just him writer producer and uh, you know, he was the it, it, they didn't even play gigs it was it was a studio project with a fantastic singer and he kind of played all the instruments and that song came out and was a huge hit in the summer of 1980 and I was 11. So I had like this uncle Steve who had the biggest hit in the world, right? You know, when funky town was number one, number two was it's coming up by Paul McCartney. Number three would be call me by Blondie. Another brick in the wall. Part two, you're the biggest part of me. Ambrosia, like the top 10 were all kind of, huge songs yeah and um he gave me glass houses the record mm-hmm. and i just i remember just one of the first songs i played on piano was that because you could just bang it like ding 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 mm-hmm. and i just I remember that bass note is not it's like it reminded me of like um 
you know, it wasn't just it was like the fifth in the bass. It was a weird note to play on a bass note, yeah. yep. you know, and and it just attracted me kind of like uh, Brian Wilson kind of had that music and, and Rundgren had that. It wasn't just kind of your classic like Bruce Springsteen. All my friends liked that kind of music. And that was yeah. not my thing. Right. Billy, <laughs> Billy had like, I mean, I always said this. It's like Billy is kind of like Beethoven and Mozart. Meets Lennon and McCartney. 100 percent. It's yeah. like all those. In, but but as much as you think, you know, I mean, and we love the Beatles more than anything. I mean, just the biggest band and most influential thing in my life. But when you listen to Billy, you're like, wow, he's doing it like really correctly. Like they were kind of scrapping through it. <laughs> right. And then you listen to Billy and it's like, oh, OK, he's getting he's doing it right. Like he he took piano lessons or something or I don't know how he how he knows that kind of Mozart Beethoven counterpoint action. Yeah. But there's no like there's no like wrong notes and weird harmonies with Billy. It's always correct. Mm -hmm. So um, I was attracted to that kind of music um, and especially Billy. So as when I was growing up, he's like, you know, glass houses. I, I kind of started there. I don't really appreciate the earlier records as much. Obviously, once the Phil Ramone thing started, I was I mean, that, you know, the last it was like 52nd Street, the other one right in between there. It, it was that it went the stranger 52nd yeah, Street stranger. Glass Houses. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I remember like Zanzibar and like yeah. Stiletto, just like as a like a 12 year old, 10 year old kid, just like going, this is incredible music. So he was always like a beacon for me, like. Mm -hmm you know, how to learn to play music and obviously Liberty and Stegmeier mm -hmm. and Javers oh, yeah. and Brown and, and Kanata. And I was just remember just like studying the credits on the back of the records. Mm -hmm. I mean, not just Billy records, all records. Oh yeah. Like I'm going to do this someday. You know, <laughs> I will take the fall for Billy. I mean, I'm a huge, we didn't start the fire fan. I think it's one of his best songs and you know, it gets a lot of shit out there. It does even by him. Honestly, nobody has written that kind of a history lesson song that I've ever heard since or before. Again, with the weird bass notes. Yep. And that was one of Tom Lord Algie's first mixes. No kidding. Um, yeah. He's a super yeah. mixer. And I ended up working with this guy over the years. And actually, Tom, you know, was involved in a lot of my biggest records as a, you know, as a mixer. And I remember asking, I'm like, dude, how did you how did you get in on We Didn't Start the Fire? It's like, man, I just was working at the studio and he did he did the first three songs on that record as a mixer. Mm -hmm. But yeah, mm -hmm. I love that record. And I was the right age. I was just soaking up music. And um, so and and by that time, Billy was starting to get, you know, among my musician friends, you'd start, you know, I'm assuming you guys are musicians. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple kinds of musicians. There's like guys like us, maybe that are into like you know, complex yeah. music. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, the other type of musos that are like. Just they started bad mouth and Billy. And yeah. like you hear it all the time. Phil Collins gets shit. Neil Diamond gets shit. John Denver gets shit. These are all my heroes. They're all ridiculously good. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you know, I don't know if it's because they're so big or because he's, you know, he. but. I will defend Billy all the way. Mm hmm. To the bank because he's yeah. I honestly think he's one of the you know the best songwriters and and kind of honestly producers 
Yeah. You know, I know he didn't get producer credit on those records, but I know he produced those records. Yeah. Especially during that period where it was the same core band. It's like they they just had such a working relationship that they just all shaped the way everything came together. Yeah. Who else had a band like that that actually played on the records? Yeah. It's, 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 it was rare. And of course, you know, it, it really hurt when I saw it all dissolve. I know. It was tough because, you know, just I was like, man, the guy who wears the watch on his ankle. What happened to him? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so Nylon Curtain, man, um, we just we just attacked it. Uh, I think. Did we start with Allentown? Yeah, we, I think we went in a rut. We just in order. Yeah, we did, went right in order. Once we got to pressure, that's when we kind of found the sound a little bit. Like mm-hmm. I was like, wait, the whole record should be a nylon guitar and a vocal. And really, from there on, it was I played the nylon guitar. I think on Allentown, I played nylon guitar too, but it was like a mixture of my steel string. I wanted it to be acoustic, yeah. vocal, and then we then we just kind of build organically like how we would make it. We wanted it to sound like him and I. Which is, you know, it's, it's going to sound kind of like ecstasy and CSN and right. whatever, like all our influences come through. But, you know, we're trying to honor the songs. But I remember that once we got the nylon guitar, I was like, and once I learned that pressure keyboard riff, mm-hmm. I was like, that's the sound. To me, I was like, we, I think we're on to something. Had a few comments. Sounds like Sting. 
the uh, <laughs> our pressure version. That's funny. It's like for some reason you put a nylon guitar and it sounds like Sting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the scene. Well, we did the dramatic <laughs> intro. We did the. That's because I said it sounds like Sting, so we should do like a little fragile. Is it right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did a little fragile style intro, and then that's so funny. But it was really fun. Yeah, yeah there's no piano on the record. Like what we did. I mean, we. I think we played. You played a little bit of piano. There's, there's, on there's um well, room of our yes. own. There's room of our own piano, but only just the slightest amount. But there's no piano. The only keyboards are generally this Mellotron flute that's on every song, and. The main instruments are basically nylon guitar, mellotron flute, bass, and percussion. And then some harmony. And really, there wasn't much harmony on the record. If you listen to the nylon curtain, there's like, there's no harmony. Like, Billy's just going straight. Yeah. You know, on Laura, mm. Laura, there's some, uh, that kind of stuff, some right. backgrounds. But for the most part, we kind of improvised. And, you know, I wanted to get Field's voice in there, too. And, because it's just kind of fun to harmonize. So that was another sure. way to kind of reinterpret the songs a little bit was to add harmony in sections that sometimes there wasn't. A lot of his other albums did have a lot of uh, backing vocals on it. And they were, well, in Innocent Man's a whole different beast because he had like half a dozen singers singing on it with him. But a lot of it was usually Billy and Doug and sometimes Russell. Both of them blended with him so well. But uh but yeah, the nylon curtain, there's layers of almost everything else but vocals, it seems. So here's my history with the nylon curtain, which is I knew side one because I'm listening to the record at home, you know, when I'm a teenager. Yeah. And I never flipped it. Never <laughs> flipped that record. I, You know, I think I did a couple of times. I'm like, yeah. Right. You know, right. but because I just wanted to hear pressure and and Goodnight Saigon and and yeah. You know, and Laura and Allentown. It's like those songs were just like some some. So when we, you know, fast forward 30 years later or whatever, I didn't really know. Where's the orchestra like at all? Right. And Scandinavian Skies, of course, which is, you know, one of the most Beatle ass. <laughs> why I'm, I am the walrus ass right. songs, you know, ever. <laughs> I didn't really know it. It was too complex for me. I remember listening through it right before we started this project. And I'm like. How are we going to do that? It's like, but we figured it out somehow. We found a way. Well, we had sheet music. We we looked at some of the sheet music. Oh, yeah. For for those riffs on Scando. Yeah. On Scandinavian Skies, for sure. We were like, what the hell do we do there? Well, you know, that song was about their first heroin experience. Didn't know that. Yeah. sounds like it. <laughs> and it wasn't a good time. It was late seventies. Like, it was all of them were over there and tried heroin for the first time, and it freaked them out. Talking about you know flying on the plane and playing the blues all night. That was like all directly lifted from the experience of doing it for the first time. Yeah, and they were listening to the blues at right. night that night when they were all like all whacked out, and they exactly. were like, "Yeah, we could we could play the blues all night." Yep, and look look around. <laughs> Thank you. 
Side two was a surpriser to me too. You know, I, I again, I was a fan of the hits as a kid, and yeah, going back, it, it, you know, but that know, turned out to yeah. be our most, I think, our most favorite stuff was is all side two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, she's right on time. We kind of oh, did a, we did a a, a little more Latin groove, but mm-hmm. it sounded kind of CSN. You know, I I don't know what we did on that one, but it, I know we kind of turned it around a little bit from synth pop rock to kind of yeah a little more percussive and fun turning off the christmas lights baby's coming home tonight i can hear the footsteps in the street turn the car up use a kite pile more wood upon the fire should make the atmosphere complete I've had to wait forever But better late than never She's just in time for me She's right on time She's right where she should be She's right on time And that, you know, that was kind of his uplifter song after, you know, Side A, which is, you know, you got Laura and Good night, side. You ending with good night, Saigon. You're gonna turn to the other side. You need something to, yeah, kick you yeah. up a little bit. So, yeah. and that was kind of all he had on that. You know, from there, it's like, wait, surprises in a room of our own. It's kind of as it's a dark record. Yeah, and it was a dark time. It is 1982. It's like, yeah, I think, 
I think we were in a reset. I remember just my dad, it, everything just felt kind of. Yeah. America seemed weakened. Right. In a way. Mm-hmm. It, oh, it, and almost like it feels right now. Right. You know, it's like it kind of feels. So to me, as we were doing the record, it just, I felt, I don't know, I felt it. Yeah. Sure. And that's. Yeah. And for me as a, you know, I love to, you know, 2020 has been tough, very COVID, everything. You don't get to perform. There's right. not as much. Yeah. For me, this record was like a chance to go create and perform like in making the videos and the performance and connecting. I don't know. I hope uh, to me, I hope it connects with somebody. I know it's a dark record and probably one of Billy, you know, those songs on the backside of that record are probably some of his least favorite. He's talked about it a lot in recent years. He'll, he goes on record to say that that's his favorite album of his. Yeah. I've heard that too. Yes. Yeah. It was coming from, it was also, you know, that dark place in America, but also the, it was when him and his wife were divorcing. And he yeah, got in the motorcycle first... accident in the middle of it too. He broke like one of his wrists and like his, uh, his thumb on the other hand, like yeah. in the motorcycle accident, his, like both hands were like harmed and people are like, wait, you haven't made a record in a year and a half. What's going on? <laughs> and they, it's like. They filmed one of the last shows of the Nylon Curtain Tour, which they released. Uh, it was called Live from Long Island, um, right at the end of 82. And you can see his, a couple of his fingers are still wrapped. And you'll see when there's, when like his left hand can, has a break in a tune, you'll see him like shaking his hand out because it was still not right. Is that the one with the live Scandinavian skies? That's it, the one. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. that's what I—that's how I learned it. I didn't learn it off the record. I learned it off the live version on YouTube. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I—I started that one myself. Because he, like, when we would do these songs, it'd be like, he, you know, he—he's—he would. I don't mean whatever. You'd start one. Alan I would Tapp, pretty like, much send him a guitar and a vocal and say, "Let's yeah, go." But or, he's like, he, you know, and occasionally, he, yeah. He, I was like, Scandinavian skies. That's you, Strawberries. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> and I was like, what's so beatly? Oh, and I just remember going, what is this? And I and, and when I sat there, I probably was in this room just sitting on. I, I generally would learn them on piano first. Mm-hmm. And just as I'm listening through the nylon curtain, I guess is what I'm saying is, I mean, there is no more Beatle album. I mean, other than like the Ruddles and like Deface the Music <laughs> by Utopia. Right. There's no oh. more Beatle record. This is as Beatly as any. Even more so than the Beatles, kind of. Right. <laughs> like, it's crazy how much, in, in, you know, like, you're like, wow, this guy loved the Beatles. And he he did put some in other, you know, there's always uh, moving out. Super Beatles, <laughs> super Beatles, like the changes, mm-hmm. you know. Doom, 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 doom. Like, he definitely is always throwing in these kind of Beatle cliche right. overdubs and so forth. But man the writing on this one and the delivery of the vocal. Um, mm-hmm. And it's both, it's, it's both Lennon and McCartney. That's what's crazy. Yeah. Where's, oh. where's the orchestra is kind of like the McCartney and 100%. then like Laura, Laura is like, so Lennon. It's and like guitar what? solo that David Brown has there. It's like, come yep. on. Yeah. It, the whole thing is, I mean, it's, it's incredible. And again, that, that he was like 32 years old. And what I just learned today, which I didn't know. And, and, and I was a huge fan of, the innocent man, you know, is that it, that it came out eleven months later? Yeah, isn't that yeah. wild? Yeah, they tossed it off like nothing. <laughs> so he finished the nylon curtain, toured it, then went back in, did an innocent man. Yeah, that was out by mid eighty three. Unbelievable! Yeah. I got a 
a birthday present in 84 and it was it was Van Halen jump album, whatever. 50, 50, what's the album called? 1984. 84. Yeah, 1984. Yeah, it was <laughs> 84. Yeah. I think it's 84. <laughs> and uh, The Innocent Man. And yep. I got a, and I just had gotten my drum set. Okay. Uh, my first drum set as I think I was 14. And uh, 15, maybe. And I had it in the basement and I had a record player right next to the drum set. And I would just jam on. I remember one after another would be Uptown Girl and Jump. <laughs> And I just like, <laughs> and then those like those fills in the middle of Uptown Girl, yeah, you know. I remember just crazily just loving those records. Can I just throw? I'm going to throw in some some love for Jim Boyer and Phil Ramon. Just you know, as a record maker, you know, Boyer doesn't get the credit that he deserves. No, and I don't know if he's still around, but you guys got to chase him down. He is. Yeah, he's still alive, fortunately. And we actually had uh, Bradshaw Lee, who was the associate engineer on those records. And so I think I'm going to I think we're going to have him put us in touch. But uh, I mean, Boyer's going to know everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just he I mean, it's so important what what he did. I mean, he was the mixer. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, it's crazy. So and just the sounds, the drum sounds, the the piano sounds, the everything. I mean, just the way they're mixed. It's. It's crazy because, I mean, I loved a lot of other records at the time, you know, but somehow those stood out to me as just like better than the rest. Yeah. Sonically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a huge, huge, you know, imprint on my life. This whole Billy thing. You know, the Nylon Curtain, too, is funny because they didn't do a million takes of the album. You know, they would work into what it became. But, you know, Billy especially wasn't a big fan of just working a song to death. He, You know, once it feels right and they got it on tape, that was it. Yeah. Um, and but so there's little things that you know made the record that uh what was the song liberty had mentioned oh uh in a room of our own coming out of the last chorus you know was doing it's all right liberty gets lost in the song flips the beat around yeah on the hat it kind of gets turned around right and so he's he's playing the mm -hmm. snare on the one and three for like a bar and a half he said he looked into the control room panicked Locks eyes with Phil, who just motions, keep going, keep going, because <laughs> Phil knew it was a good take. And so he but he found his space, flipped it around. And but the take was so good that they left it in. You know that they say that's what's problem with like the computer pro tools you know right. generation of record making is you fix everything right yeah they'll never let that leave that in the human elements that's are gone. so interesting because i think i heard that today i was like god that's a strange section after that last once you go it's all right that last <laughs> one it's like wait what's going on with the drums and that was another thing on this record i was always like the drums What's going on? Is are they like delayed? It it had that kind of beetle right Lennon yeah, that, thing on well, the drums, you know, yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's was it's it, was it Redolby or what? What, what, what did no, they record it's, it's, it with? It's like it's, Dubly. It's kind of like a room Mikey, but there it's more like like slap almost. Yeah, it's like, like there's a yeah. slap thing on it, and that kind of turned me off to the record. I think early on, like when I heard it years ago i was like I, that's cool I, I don't quite get it but now yeah. i don't know digging into it 
the songs, you know, they touched a nerve, every single one of them. It's yeah. like a room of our own. I mean, listen, we're, yeah. <laughs> we're all going through I mean, no this question. Time. It's my favorite Billy album. And I love so many, you know, particular songs from, you know, kind of different records and so forth. But as a whole, it's it's I think it's the most succinct and most complete, best sounding, to be honest. I, lo- I love the Phil Ramone, Jim Boyer era records. They all sounded great, but none of them sounded big like this one. Right. You know, Stormfront was, like you said, past Phil Ramone. So that's a whole different beast. Yep. Do we even talk about River of Dreams or we don't even talk about that, really? Do we? <laughs> we don't I mean, talk we about, do. We don't you know, talk about that. <laughs> we got time to fill. <laughs> We're t- only talking about the nylon curtain. <laughs> I'm yeah. just curious if you guys were what your guys, you know, how you think of that. Well, that was my like album I bought in the store. Like I came online during Stormfront and then like I knew River of Dreams was coming out. So, you know, I, I've always had an affinity for it. I, I found that it's better in passing. If you kind of sit down and listen, some of the songs go on a little too long at the end. Like there's a little too much kind of overdub silliness going on there the one big takeaway to me is no other record from that year sounds like it like he's neither like trying to be young nor is he like doing that like late 80s phil collins eric clapton thing where he's like nope i'm middle-aged it's cool everything's got some nice smooth wet production on it and we're gonna slide her into our dockers i really think that makes that album more interesting than people give it credit for yeah and then then he just checked out yeah, <laughs> and then he was yeah. done. <laughs> yeah, but, and I can't think of another artist who has, I mean, other than like Eddie and the Cruisers, which is another one of my favorite movies. Yeah. If you've ever seen it. Yeah. Um, who just kind of just went away. But, you know, the weird part is that he kept playing the gigs. Yeah. I've always, you know, been really curious about that stance of like, yeah, I don't really want to write songs anymore. I mean, I, I, yeah. I definitely appreciate it because you know, uh, like I'm not going to shit talk anybody, but just some of my heroes who continued to make records that just, in their 50s and so forth. Just, you know, these are millionaires singing yeah. about what do they say? You know, it's just it's, I don't know something about this. Just so there is something to be respected about just laying back and saying, hey, I love playing the music, but right. I'm not going to make any new music. Yeah. You know, because, you know, that's how you get these these weird Elton John albums that come out. Don't you think like he's kind of been stockpiling this little, or, or maybe it's just going to happen. Like one, well, there was that one, he wrote one song for this kid. Wasn't there like a one dude who sang a song like in the early two thousands. Yeah. Christmas in Fallujah. It was like his version of good night Saigon. If it was written by, I don't even know. Three doors down. uh, (laughs) And then he wrote one song around that time as well, too, called All My Life. It's a very Sinatra kind of tune. And um, he recorded it with Phil Ramone so that they kind of reconnected for the one song. But it was a very, you know, it was Billy in full crooner mode. So it didn't really connect with any of the other things in his canon in that way. But uh, yeah, that's it in like 25 years, 30 years now. Crazy. Um, I had a friend who played in this band Splendor in the late 90s. Oh, I love Splendor. Yeah. Um, the drummer, Mark Slutsky. Mark. And and he um, yeah. he ended up playing with Alexa Ray and, and her. You know, he was like a New York yeah. young hotshot drummer. Yep. And he was telling me stories how they would, you know, they'd they'd 
be playing an Alexa Ray gig at, you know, I don't know where the Bowery Ballroom or whatever the places were. Yeah. And Billy would come backstage before the, you know, kind of come into the back room. It's like, all right, guys, you know, like give him a little pep talk before they'd go on. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> big show, big crazy. show. Take a deep yeah, breath. He was like, craziest. He was like, it was so crazy. It's just like Billy Joel comes in and we're like, it just, it, you know, it's so, he, it's so strange to think. And again, he's one of those guys, too, that you think. He would just be a fantastic hang, just like a regular one of the people, just a dude. Right. You know, guy in the yeah. band. Yep. But then there's, the, you know, it, but also he's Billy Joel. Right. <laughs> so it's this weird. He, he does have a thing where it's like he he seems very accessible. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I don't think he is. No, no. And, and that's. <laughs> I think he wants to be, but by nature of all the success, he can't be. And so I think that right. probably was, I imagine that's hard for, for anybody with that kind of success, you know. Totally. I mean. To deal with. Well, man, what a life. And just, you know, and and again, I, I, I think I just saw him on like, I think it was Howard Stern recently. Yeah. And like his kids are running in, little kids are like running in the room during the interview. And it's <laughs> yeah. just like, dude, 70 you know, 71 to 72 year old man. Right. Got like, you know, eight year olds running around. It's crazy. <laughs> that would be crazy. Did do you know? I'm just curious because of, of all this, like people selling their catalogs and all that. Yeah. Have, did he do any of that action yet or any or? No, he he hasn't. Um, I've I heard him talk on it once and I think he likes the control, you know, because early on with some of the early deals he signed, you know, there was that period in his career where he had no control. And so I yeah. think he doesn't want to give it up again, which is good for him. So tell us about, I, cause I know you worked with Glenn. Was it the winter Pacer summer album? Yeah, I did that record in like 2004 or five ish. And um, so, you know, been buds ever since. And he came to Minneapolis, I don't know, a couple months ago, kind of mid pandemic when the, when it was the gigs were kind of back up. Yeah. And right mm-hmm. across the street from my studio is a really cool uh, venue. It's like a restaurant bar. Yeah. And it's a super great place to play for acoustic types. It's probably like 200 people. Oh, cool. I, I think I'd literally walked over at like four in the afternoon while they were doing the sound check and just walked in. And he looks down and he's like, whoa. I mean, it was it's like 200 feet from my control room. Right. And I said, dude, what, what's you know, what's going on? You know, whatever. We hadn't seen each other in years. It's like my studio's across the street. Come on over. Let's hang. And they finished their sound check. And he and the opening act guy, they came over and we sat in my control room and kind of reconnected on, you know, his life's been he's moved a couple times and just kind of yeah. caught up. Yep. And I said, like, hey, man, I'm working on this project right now. Um, let me just uh, play you something. And I played him, I think, Allentown. Yeah. And I was like, so I'm doing this with my buddy, John. I know you love Billy Joel. He's like, I, he said, Nylon Curtain is one of my tops of all time. I'm like, dude, will you please do a guest spot? And we had only at that point, we had only up to maybe Goodnight Saigon in the works. And I just said, you know, what would you want to do? You could take a verse. You could do anything you want. And I said, he's like, what about pressure? I said, well, why don't you take the bridge? And he sang it. And that's the take you see in the video. Yeah, mm, that's um, awesome. <laughs> I think he sang it two or three times. And uh, I was like, you know, look in the camera one of the times, you know. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and that was it. Whole thing, nine minutes. <laughs> That's amazing. You know?
we'd love to have a guest. We had Phil Solom from the Rembrandts on, uh, I think, the Room of Our Own. Was it Room <laughs> of Our Own solo on banjo? Yeah. yeah, he played a banjo solo. Yeah. And it's all right. It's the one thing that we should have known. It's all right. Yes, we Soul. Unbelievable. He lives in Nashville now, but he's from Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. So I remember calling him like, dude, will you play a solo on this? Do you have a banjo? And he's like, I do. (laughs) So we will, you know, occasionally we'll we'll farm out a little piece. Yeah. Someone else in those. It just happened to be that those were the two uh, guest spots. Yeah. There wasn't many much room for guest spots on this record. The Steely Dan record, we had Ross Rice. Yep. On. Uh Yep. Chain lightning. I'm particularly just, I'm really proud of, you know, what we did. You know, when you finish it up and you're done with it was nine songs. Yeah. Especially with the epic. I mean, Scando sounded it was like 20 songs in there. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like and then we, you know, getting to go make the videos with one of my best buds. And like we went up up to Duluth. Uh, some of those are up in Lake Superior, which are some really cool nature. Oh, amazing up there. And just yeah. it was just fun. And, and you know, we're, we're going to do it again. We don't know what it's going to be next. We've been talking about 1982, but we've also been talking about any, you know, you know, I will say we love Joe Jackson. OK, yeah, yeah. But, right. um, <laughs> but we love everything. So yeah. we don't know where it's going. We've gone from Steely Dan to Billy Joel. It's like, what could be next? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like that is kind of like to me, that's the top of the heap of of Amer- uh, yeah, American songwriting right yeah. there. Right. Donald Fagan and Billy Joel are kind of, that's the top contemporary American classic recordings yeah. that have happened to me. I don't know. And then, I don't yeah. know. I, I think there's so many other people, but a full record. I don't know. It's like, I kind of, we think might Johnny be done Lige, with that. We might, have, <laughs> we might be done making full records. We yeah. might just do singles or, uh, yeah. yeah who, or we might just start making original music or, you know, pick a year and do songs from 1986 or eight, you know, we talked about that. Yeah. We actually talked about 82 yep. because 82 is just chock full of incredible. <laughs> I tell you what, yeah. man. I mean, mm. when, yeah, when I look at the pop charts back then, I'm just like, it's like heavy hitters all the way down the list. Yeah. I mean, for what you guys are doing, you know, YouTube is probably the perfect spot for it with the videos. You know, you see so many like bands and, and, and sort of pick up ensembles doing these covers now. I mean, it's like yeah. the 40s again where like everybody did uh, Tuxedo Junction or something. You know, it's like 20 million versions of yeah. them. Have you guys like watched any other like YouTube cover acts or anything? Or are you guys just out there on your own on it? When we started doing this, we started going down the Billy Joel covers rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. And like there's those Swedish girls that do uh what was the song no you're no, talking no, about steely dan so that was yeah. Steely Dan. Oh, they, yeah. were, they were incredible the swedish girls that were doing the steely no, dan uh, <laughs> uh 
there was a guy we we've been working we've been looking at uh, a couple Steely Dan songs. There, there, every once in a while, there's there's a guy uh, or someone will show you how to play it on piano. <laughs> oh yeah, and I'll watch like they'll have the camera over the piano. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you can like see the notes. And you're like, oh, that's how you do it. Yeah, I mean, I, every once in a while, I I'll watch covers. I mean, it's I, I enjoy it. You know, if it's good and inventive and and or exact. For us on the videos, it's more of like, okay, this is like an extra thing to challenge us, like, to, and to for something to do to like really just take it to the next level. And yeah. Fields is really a great cinematographer, actually, with his iPhone. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we go out and it's like we cut the song two or three times out in nature, and that's kind of what we get. And then it's like me coming back and going, okay, what can we do to edit this or do we have any footage of us actually playing the instruments, which, you know, a lot of times we do. I'll just, we're cutting as we're like doing these. Yeah. I can see the green screen behind your head right now. Oh yeah. There <laughs> it is. The green, yeah. The green screen was new in, in Johnny lied volume two. Like that you can see, I started using some shadows of us, a few of us pop in here and there, yep. but yeah. yeah, the videos, you know, we've more promoted just on Facebook, it, yeah. like YouTube. We're both, he, he and I were not, like on the, uh, we're going to like do a social media campaign and do all this. We don't know what we're doing. We're doing it for the fun and learning. Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. hopefully someone sees it and appreciates it somehow, like just hearing a different version. Yeah. I will say we have talked about, you know, as soon as this pandemic ends, so hopefully, uh, but now we can, we want to play live. That would be fun. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. and, and it's weird. It's like, it's Katie lied and nylon curtain. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to do that. Like I probably play bass and he'd play guitar and we've talked about getting a couple of our friends playing. We want to have double drums. Oh, that yeah, would be fun. two drummers. Just, just because if you only have one drummer, it's like, eh, they have two drummers. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. You get all the percussion aspects and Johnny lied. Could be a cool performance act at some point, or maybe we could just do the nylon curtain almost as a musical in a way. Yeah. Like we could come out and like, cause to me that, that record tells the story. possible. Yeah. It tells a story. It's like a play. It's like a musical. And, and where's the orchestra? That is the musical of just like everyone's life playing out. It's like, where mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the orchestra? It's like, okay, I've, I've been through all of this. Yeah. Now where's the, mm-hmm. re- where's the reward? On empty like, chairs. And, right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. the last me, thing he says is on empty chairs, where's the orchestra? <laughs> We're and to me, that is the like like to know that song and yeah. just to learn it. Oh. Mm-hmm. I was just I was so proud of myself just to even learn that song. And then to be able to record it. And I feel like we did it justice. We did it in a you know, it's our own way. Absolutely. And just to have and then to have Allentown just come back in at the end and that was such have a everything nice touch cycle that around. That song. Yeah. That was a good catch, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean it's just that's the way it is. That right. record is genius. Mm-hmm. And it was an honor to recreate. And I've never seen Billy Joel live. You know, I've been in this uh sloppy Joel's cover band. We, we I think we did four or five shows. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple times we did shows while he was playing. And we're like, let's book a gig next to the Target Center where he's playing. And maybe after the gig, he's going to come over to the bar. And yeah, I remember that. Sit in. It was kind of like waiting for Guffman in a way. Like, right, right. But we were all, 
No, we are all passionate about these Billy songs. And, you know, as a musician, as a man, uh, a woman, man, whatever you are, it, Billy Joel is like, he's a rare breed. Mm-hmm. He spoke, you know, he's, he's given us so much truth, honesty. Oh, my God. That's rare. I know. It's just so rare for an artist to be able to go there. Honestly, and yeah. I just want to make sure. He, I, I don't know. I just really honor that man, uh, John. I think you amazing. did your part. I think you, you, you did. You did. Both of you. you did it justice, and you, you gave back, and uh, that's what I'm proud of. That just that that we even did it at all, and that we finished it because it was, you know, it was a lofty mountain to climb, mm-hmm. and we're just happy yes. to have, to have done it. You know, look, will Billy ever see or hear? We, we, the whole time we were joking. What are these two guys doing? What are these two guys? Uh, like, what are they doing out on the lake? What are they doing? What is this? What's this guitar? What is this going on? Yeah. What is these guys? What are these guys? What are these doing? guys doing this with the nylons curtains? Right. And you know, we just we like make it like what would he would say if he saw it? You know. Yeah. Before we wrap up here, telling everyone where they can find you and you know find what you're doing and check out some of these videos. We'll link to them as well, but you one should let everybody know. Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think we have a YouTube at Johnny Lied, right, Fields? Yeah, it's Johnny Lied YouTube, Johnny Lied Instagram, Johnny Lied Facebook. That's the way you find us. And we're on all the streaming services. So, um, you know, can't say Spotify anymore, but we're on Spotify <laughs> and we're on Apple and Deezer and whatever, all these other ones. Funny, I mean, the whole Joe Rogan thing. And I'm like, okay. Whatever he said aside, I'm like, but you were fine with how shitty the payout was to artists and musicians, but this was a step too far. <laughs> the songwriter, you know, you know yeah. who David Lowry is? Yes. Right. So he'd been railing against this royalty rate for years. He's been the loudest voice. I think he was in the band Cracker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's been railing against this, you know, minuscule royalty for songwriters thing. And, you know, just a screaming guy, but, you know, upon deaf ears. Right. But, um, you know, I have a bunch of friends in L.A. who started this kind of it's called We Are Sona, S-O-N-A. And it's like a a Sona. Is it Sola? Whatever. Yes. So sound of no, whatever. Songwriters of Los Angeles, I think. Okay. They've been fighting this fight and they took this and grabbed it. You know, it was the yes. Neil Young was it was a political stance, right? Or a kind of a misinformation stance yeah but but the whole time people have been complaining about this this artist money thing and it was just a chance to grab that and say hey this is also going on and because people are listening now like oh this big behemoth company is taking advantage of it's a you know it's a money issue my big issue is it's like well they're giving you know all this money to this podcaster and not me as a songwriter It's like or us as songwriters, it's like, you know, let's be equitable with that because essentially all the money's going. I mean, yes, the dude gets a lot of listens and a lot of clicks, but, you know, hey, the musicians better a lot of music. (laughs) The platform was built on on music. I mean, yeah, it took him a while for the for the first while. Remember when they didn't have the Beatles? Oh, right. It's like, oh, now now I can get Spotify and now because essentially I can get anything now. But no, I can't really because. Right. Now I can't listen to Joni Mitchell, Court and Spark or, uh, you know, after the gold rush by by Neil Young. I mean, I can go to YouTube and do it. Right. But who knows if anything's going to change. But I will say it made a stink. Yeah. Which is good, because I think 
you know, whether the initial reason is for it all starting, I'm offering the excuse for people to start being really aware the convenience for you negatively affects the artist in the long run and even the short run for a lot of people. I was lucky enough to just squeak in as a producer, like towards like just the end, like my first major label record I ever made was, uh, was Teen and the B-Sides and Dovetail Joint, those two records, which were kind of rock, kind of caught in there. And then the Switchfoot record I made in like 2002 called The Beautiful Letdown. Yep. That was like the, the end of rock radio. Yep. That was and it. they happened to have a couple big rock songs on that record. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to like get a, just get a little piece of that. But, you know, after that, it just all went to internet essentially. And like, you know, it was, it was just, there was less radio and, Radio just meant less to yeah. the landscape. So even though you're like on the radio, it doesn't mean you're 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 any bigger than, you know. Right. But, you know, in the 90s, it was like, whoa, you get a radio song and it's on. It's right. Like, like you know, you're Sean Mullins's and all those dudes. Oh, forget it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just one tune and it's it's on as cool as it is to not have gatekeepers. You know what there used to be like the A&R people, you got to get signed, you got to get it through the president of the label, you got to get the single released, you got to get the promotion team behind you at Columbia Records or whatever. As much as that was bullshit and annoying to, you know, people who really wanted it but didn't get it, it did cut out the fat. You know, now you get these tunes that are huge hits or literally have zero history, zero gigs zero like literally a, a laptop bedroom record and it, it's cool and all if it sounds cool but it's like there's no dues being paid we came in spastic like tameless horses we left in plastic as numbered corpses and we learned fast to travel light What's interesting about some of those records too is like Jack and I kind of picked up on it. it's like what Billy was what keyboard he was obsessed with at the time like the Street Life Serenade album there's Moog all over it right and yeah. the Stranger into Fifty Second Street there's a lot of Fender Rhodes by Glass Houses he was way into the CP80 the Yamaha CP80 so that's on everything on that record and less grand piano and so it's like whatever he's like really into at the time, it just colored the whole record. Well, he was, he was moving with the times. He's that's a cool thing about Billy Joel. He was always moving forward. Even if you didn't like river of dreams or, yeah. you know, the further records, it's like, he was, he was like, I, I can't make the same thing I did. I already did that. I, I already do did that I'm uh, doing. 10 months ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he's <laughs> like, I November, did that man. 10 months ago and <laughs> well, I got to get this done for the I mean, When you think about it, job. You know, all Beatles albums were made within like six years or whatever, you know, just like, yeah. you know, it's it's weird when you're like, whoa, that was 40 years ago was the Nylon Curtain. And and Billy hasn't made an album for, you know, 26 years or whatever the number is. Yeah. You're like, he made all those in this. Like we're talking about like writing, recording, yep. touring, everything, even the bad songs, even the Elvis <laughs> Presley boulevards, you know, just like. We thought about it. We listened we to that one and thought, we we're like, it, okay, well, maybe we sh- was there any B-sides that never got released? And we're yeah. like, this guy's ripping off his own song. He's ripping <laughs> off The Stranger. 
Then someone's right. one, two, three, four. Three, four, <laughs> four, three, two, one. <laughs> yeah, that's how we end, end the sloppy jaws. We went four, three, four, three, two, one. Man, and you're in. <laughs> Gotta that's switch perfect. it up. This has been a lot of fun. It really intrigued me. And to me, that's one of Billy's most challenging records to untangle. It was a real treat to listen to. That's awesome. We love that. Thanks so much for having us, guys. John and John, thanks so much. This was so much fun. And we love your take on the Nylon Curtain. I've been listening to to this for weeks now, ever since you guys sent us over the tracks. And really well done. And I've always thought this album was criminally underappreciated in Billy's canon. It was really cool to hear your story about how it all came together. I'm going to say this right now. Number one, please send me a message and let me know if you guys do want to perform this live. Time and money permitting. So I'll take a trip out and check it out. And I'll especially take a trip out if I can lay claim and be the drummer. I'll come out for rehearsals. I'll sit, I get on stage. I'm quite the rhythmatist. We can make this work, fellas. Just don't do it in the wintertime when it's like negative 20, right? I don't care. I don't care. I'll come out. That's fine with me. I'll, I, I want to experience the true <laughs> Midwestern right. experience. And I think I have to be there in the snow <laughs> for that to happen. <laughs> that is the true Midwestern experience, as you're damn sure. All right, so let me ask you this, Michael. What was your favorite track? Ooh, man, I, I tell you, I I love their take on Surprises. That was probably one of my favorites. I love yeah. that song to begin with, but Surprises, I'd say, was near the top of my list. Um, I love the sweetness of Where's the Orchestra. That was just very simple and well done. And I also love the surprise Glenn Phillips vocal on Pressure. That totally caught me off guard, uh, but that was a lot of fun, too. What about you? I liked Where's the Orchestra. I think Scandinavian Skies was my favorite. I think and it, it was interesting hearing how that was uh, challenging for them, but I really think they really stuck on something there, especially with the percussion. That was the instance, I think, where, you know, you could hear them settle into the groove, you know, this mostly acoustic-based kind of thing with the nylon guitar. But when faced with the challenge of, of trying to arrange or rearrange a, a song with such idiosyncratic and complex orchestration i think that's where like the muse really uh touched them what, what is it the muse what, what does the muse do is it touch you that sounds that sounds naughty what does the muse do you know what i'm In trying to say way, um <laughs> yeah <laughs> i do i do yeah i think that one really took flight it's funny you mentioned where's the orchestra that's sort of the silver lining for this project is the fact that nylon curtain is criminally underrated that we haven't been beaten to death with all the songs on this album like we have with perhaps The Stranger. Sure, those first three, you know, those three out of four, you know, Allentown, Pressure, and Goodnight Saigon, it's going to take a while before those really will sound like too much more than novelties, even even for as well done as they are, just because the originals are so ingrained in everyone, whether you're a Billy fan or not. When you get into those more obscure songs, there's not as much baggage attached to them and you're allowed to really jump right into a recreation of them without thinking quite as much about the originals. When you're thinking about it from that aspect, this is definitely the album to do that with, where you can really take the most chances and the most liberties and really get inside the songs and 
do something unique that people aren't aren't going to immediately compare to the original. All right. So once again, we're going to kick this all to you. First of all, go check them out. Johnny Lied on YouTube. We'll put the link in the show notes, of course. But I think if you uh, just pop that into the old search bar on YouTube, it'll it'll come right up for you. Hey, man, give these a listen. Uh, check out those videos, too. Really cool stuff. We, of course, want to know what you guys think. What's your favorite track off this? Uh, what do you think worked? What do you think didn't? Yeah, the Nylon Curtain was sandwiched in between Glass Houses and An Innocent Man for studio albums. And those were both just juggernauts. And so this album was kind of like a sleeper in between them. But there is so much going on underneath it that it's really hard to pick apart. And I think these guys did a really good job of it. Hit us up. Let us know what you think. Glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, find us Glasshouses, a Billy Joe podcast. Oh, and uh, Michael, is there something people should do if they happen to listen to us on Apple Podcast? It is absolutely Funny that you mentioned that because there is something that they can do that just takes a minute or less of their time that would go a long way to helping our podcast. So if you guys listen to us on Apple Podcasts, there's just a quick little section that says you can leave a rating or a review. And if you could do both, that would be fantastic. So a quick five-star rating and a positive review goes a long way in telling the Apple algorithm that we are a worthwhile podcast to help grow our reach. So just a couple clicks and a couple keystrokes will really go a long way to you directly helping us grow the community and growing the podcast. Couldn't have said it any better myself. So with that, we will see you next time. We'll see you next time. Where's the orchestra? Wasn't this supposed to be a musical? Here I am in the balcony How the hell could I have missed the overture? I like the scenery
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 